Welcome to Sabbath School, brought to you by It Is Written. Delighted to have you back with us again this week. This week we are looking at lesson number nine, Jacob the Supplanter. We are about halfway through this particular quarter's lessons and looking at a very interesting story today and some of the familial dynamics that are going on in this story. We're also excited to have back with us again as our guest today, Dr. Philip Simon, who is Professor Emeritus at Southern Adventist University. He has served as a professor at the Theological Seminary at Andrews University. He is an author of many books, excellent books. He has also served as a missionary and was the editor of the Sabbath School Lessons. Dr. Simon, welcome back once again. Thank you. So let's dive into this. We've got the story of Jacob here, and I want to take a look at the memory text today, because the memory text really gives us a a great introduction to this particular week's lesson. It's found in Genesis chapter 27 and verse number 36. And here's what it says in Genesis 27, 36. And Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and now, look, he has taken away my blessing. And he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? So who was Esau talking to and what was the significance of this blessing that he clearly coveted? You know, you really feel sympathy for Jacob. He lost everything. You know, people think of the birthright, but there was also a blessing. Father, don't you have one blessing left for me? And even when you read a verse 34, you see the the angst, you see the torment, if you please, of Esau losing these two things. Verse 34 says, When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry, and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. The agony he was going through, this tough wilderness man, showed a lot of emotion. It's interesting that we take God's blessings for granted when things are going well, but later on we regret bitterly, but it's too late. And then if you look at uh, verse 35, but he said, that's his father, Isaac, and he said, your brother came with deceit and has taken away your blessing. Mention the word deceit. And then, Esau said to his father in response, Is he not rightly named? (laughs) Not wrongly, rightly. The name really fits him. The meaning of the name, you know, Jacob. And he remembered, even so many years later, that he's been a deceiver all along. And now he is living out the meaning of his name. And we see in this week's lesson that Jacob pays a a price for his deceit. And he didn't even, he didn't need to deceive. He didn't need to to steal this blessing, did he? No, because it was his. God was going to work it out. But that's the problem of the dysfunctional family. Abraham and Sarah could not wait for the Lord to give them their own son. They had to appeal to Hagar. And now Jacob, by the way, I, I don't want to blame Jacob, not because... I want to blame women. No. You know, I cannot blame Sarah. They both participated, Abraham and Sarah. But it's interesting. If you read the text carefully, it's his mother who encouraged him. And he was saying, Mom, slow down. I mean, 
It's going to be an obvious thing. My dad's going to discover I was deceived. No, no. We'll do certain things. Don't worry about it. I'll take care of business. And, and she went through, you know, the hairy hand, uh, arms, and then, you know, the, around his neck, hair. And he said, what about my voice? Don't worry, don't worry. It'll be okay. So I want to say that his mother encouraged him. And I don't want to say that without his mother, he wouldn't have deceived, but she was played a big part. So there were, there were several who were involved in this deceit. Just like Sarah really encouraged Abraham. He didn't want to go to Hagar. She talked to him about it, and after he did not listen to her, she brought her to him. So she encouraged him as much as Rebecca encouraged her. So, so what we have here, as, and you've mentioned it already, is a very dysfunctional family. There are no dysfunctional families in the world today, are there? Many dysfunctional families. The av- research shows the average American marriage today lasts only seven years. That's pretty That's short. Dysfunction. That's It may be a perfect number of years, but not in that context, I don't That's think. That's why when I tell people I'm almost married 50 years, they're shocked. Really? I said, really? <laughs> but there is a lot of dysfunction. 50 years is a, a phenomenally long time in, in this culture, and... Hey, if, if most are seven years, that's, if that's the average, if that's the norm, well, then, then this story and, and what we're looking at here in Jacob and the supplanter in a dysfunctional family, maybe there's something we can learn here. Jesus, our Savior and Lord, came through this dysfunctional family, which tells us there's hope for all of us. Oh, absolutely. That if we trust God, He's willing to work with us. So here we have these brothers who have an imperfect relationship one with another. They have an imperfect relationship with their parents. There's kind of, there's a little bit of taking sides that are, that are going on here. And, and part of that is because there were likes and dislikes that one child shared with one parent and the other child shared with the other parent. What were some of those things that they shared in common? Well, I mean, Rebecca loved Jacob. He was with her at home. He cooked. He, he knew how to cook. And uh, Esau was a hunter. He's a wilderness man. That's, that's a difference. And then his father, Isaac, liked Esau. They have similar likes. They both like to eat the game that Esau hunted. That's why at the very end, Esau went to eat before he died. And by the way, the death idea was common to both of them. You know what young Esau told Jacob, he said, I'm tired, I'm weary, I'm about to die. <laughs> Would you please give me to eat from your food so I can make it? And the same thing Isaac said, before I die, I need to eat. So that's income. Then I like to bring up the, the name, the, the meaning of name Jacob, you know, more specifically, supplanter, to supersede and replace his brother, one who takes the heel, and also Esau, you know, has two meanings, Esau, because another name for Esau is Edom. Esau literally means somebody who's hairy. I mean, I've never seen the scripture, a man who's so hairy. He was covered with hair, his neck all the way down. And then the other meaning is Edom, and you have the Edomites. And this means red, because the lentil stew, the color was red. So just insights into the characters, insights into their, their physical makeup and their, their mental and emotional states as well. Isaac loved Esau, Rebecca loved Jacob, 
and you've got this this dysfunction that comes naturally out of a situation like that when there's favoritism of one child over another. And again, we still see the same thing today. Same thing today. When when you have that favoritism. Same thing. Let's see. When when we take a look at this deception that Jacob uh, practiced, his his mother encouraged him in this deception. And he went along with it. He was complicit, you might say. He stole from his brother. He deceived his father. What were some of the the results of that? I don't want to jump too far ahead to where we're going, but what were some of the results of this this deception and this stealing that took place? Can you imagine deceiving your godly father at his deathbed? That's how... His relationship with his father ended because he never saw his father again. What a goodbye. Deception. And you know something? Um, I mean, Isaac kind of knew in his heart there was deception. He knew it. You know, I mean, your voice is not the voice of Esau. And it haunted him in his future. And then he had to run away for his life. You know, we're told... Uh, by inspiration that he fled to the wilderness quickly, never to see his mother again who loved him. So in a way, they lost both sons. That's the consequence for two different reasons. He ran for his life. We're told that vicious animals, beasts, chased him. And then killers, bands of killers, pursued him before he got so tired and slept and then the dream. We'll talk about the dream later. Yeah. So he was, he was fleeing for his life, but his, his choices got him into it. Um, he was, he, he, his relationship with his parents was essentially destroyed, uh, with his brother, at least for the time being, was as well. And, and this deception, this uh, this deceit really messed up his life for, for many years. And as we see what happened to him before he returned and, and met his brother again, that deception kind of got visited back on him again. It's a, what you meet out gets, gets delivered to you as well. So it, nothing good per se came of the deceit. God turned evil to good. He brought some good out of it. But there, there might be some people who are thinking, you know, well, maybe, maybe if, I, if, if my goals are good, then I can, I can practice deceit and the ends justify the means. What, what would you say to, to somebody who had that idea, the ends justifying the means? It's very prevalent philosophy. It's practiced today in many walks of life. It is really about not trusting God and His promises. I can do it better than God. You see, I, I can fulfill the promises my way. But it catches up with you. Let God do it His way, and that's better for everybody. I mean, we'll talk about that a bit later, but I mean, look at Laban, his own uncle, the brother of his mother. He had kind of deceit in him too. Deceit was prevalent throughout the whole family. And wow, what a comeback. Deceit with his marriage. Can you imagine waking up after waiting seven years for the Rachel he loved, waking up, you know, early in the morning after the honeymoon and discovering the wrong wife in his bed 
And he could say, excuse me, this is the wrong thing, I'm getting out of here. No, he had to live with her for seven years. Can you imagine? While Rachel was around, and how miserable it was for Leah herself. How do you like to live with a husband who doesn't love you for seven years? That is quite a return for his deception. It doesn't pay. It, it doesn't pay. It catches pay. up with you at some point. You, you're absolutely right. So l- let's come back. We're, we kind of jumped ahead, and we'll get there again. But yes. I want to come back here to this, this birthright that Jacob stole. He didn't have to steal it. He didn't have to. It, it, God had a way of, of dealing with it. He could yes. have. Yes. But he didn't trust God. And we're going to talk in just a few minutes about trusting God and the results of trusting God as opposed to jumping ahead and doing things our own way. So you don't want to miss this. When we come back, we are going to be looking at that specifically and how God still blessed, but how he could have done so much more and how the story could have been different if he had. We'll be back in just a moment. You know that at It Is Written, we are serious about studying the Word of God, and we encourage you to be serious as well. Well, here's what you do if you want to dig deeper into God's Word. Go to itiswritten.study for the It Is Written Bible Study Guides online. 25 in-depth Bible studies that will take you through the major teachings of the Bible. You'll be blessed, and it's something you'll want to tell others about as well. Itiswritten.study. Go further. Itiswritten.study. Thank you for remembering that It Is Written exists because of the kindness of people just like you. To support this international life-changing ministry, please call us now at 800-253-3000. You can send your tax-deductible gift to the address on your screen, or you can visit us online at itiswritten.com. Thank you for your prayers and for your financial support. Our number again is 800-253-3000, or you can visit us online at itiswritten.com. Welcome back to Sabbath School, brought to you by It Is Written. We are taking a look at Jacob the Supplanter. We've looked at some of the poor decisions that he has made in the past and some of the, uh, the high price that he needed to pay as a result of that. But we want to see that there's also hope, and we're going to see that very clearly here in how God treats Jacob and what he does for him. So Jacob is fleeing for his life. He's afraid. It, his situation looks well-nigh hopeless, and yet God kind of breaks through and lets him know that all hope is not lost. I want to I take a look at Genesis chapter 28, verses 16 through 18. Genesis 28, 16 through 18 says, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, And this is the gate of heaven. Verse 18, Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. So what's going on in this story? Why why is he feeling like he hasn't been completely forsaken? How did God help him to understand that? In the midst of hopelessness and deceit and feeling guilty, running for his life, you know, stealing from his brother, conspiring with his mother and deceiving his dying father. He felt lousy, but he was so tired 
And I, I imagine he just, he just said, Lord, help me if you can. And fell asleep. But in the midst of his hopelessness, something breaks through. What a dream, what an awesome dream. He saw this ladder coming from heaven and connecting with him at ground zero. And God was going to lift him up and say, there's hope for you. There is heaven you could look up and live. And he woke up. And he just remembered this dream. And he said, what? This is here, right? Here is the house of God, Bethel. I didn't know God was around me, but he is here nevertheless. I experience him. Often, you know, we, we feel God has forgotten us, but he's right there with us. And then he said, I want to take this stone, which serves a pillow. And he erected it into a pillar, pointing heavenward. The, the, the pillow is horizontal. You compare your, yourself with other people, with other circumstances, but the pillar points toward the heaven. And what else did he do? He poured oil on it. I think it was olive oil. That's the oil they use there. To do what? Consecrate it. I just got a little pillar compared to your ladder, but I want to consecrate whatever you gave me to you. You know, this kind of reminds me of uh, of the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel was an effort by people to 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 buy themselves by their own works, by their own attainment, to erect something to reach to heaven. But God says, no, let me show you how this actually works. And so he gives that ladder. And that, that ladder is significant. It's not just a, a ladder, but that ladder represents someone, someone, someone who, who makes that connection between earth and heaven. Talk about and that the, ladder a little bit more. The answer is found in John one fifty one. If we could look at that. Yeah, let's take a look at it. John one fifty one, And he said to him, this is Jesus saying this to Nathaniel, Most assuredly I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So Jesus is that ladder. And it's interesting that that harkens back to, of course, Genesis 28. Jesus is thinking about Jacob's ladder because he himself was the ladder. And that's why we're told by uh, Ellen White that, uh, that Jesus is the medium of prayer between heaven and earth. He reaches at ground zero, but he doesn't leave us there. He takes us to the gates of heaven. And then she continued to say, therefore, when you pray, um, cling, cling to Jesus. Cling to the ladder and climb upon the ladder. Now, can we ever climb to heaven? No, in our human effort we cannot. But Jesus specializes in compensation. He reaches where we are and he completes the journey for us. Clinging to that ladder is, is important. Just this, uh, this last weekend I was doing some, some renovations or some, some work on the church and, uh, and got up a ladder and and found that it was important to cling to it. You don't want to fall from a ladder. And, and clinging to Jesus through prayer and realizing that he is our only connection to heaven, the only one that works. People try a lot of different things, but Jesus is that only connection uh, that works. And, and really to, to cling to him and to, 
engage in prayer and to trust in him is, is essential for the Christian walk? It's a balanced approach. Some people cling too much. <laughs> Some people climb too much without clinging. We have to cling to Jesus. And as we cling to him, we climb. We do our best. Our best is good enough for Jesus. Nobody can reach heaven without Jesus. We can do our part, our best. And Jesus steps in to compensate for all our deficiencies. When Jacob saw this ladder, when he had this dream, what kind of hope do you think that gave him? What kind of encouragement do you think that gave him? A lot of hope because Jesus spoke to him and told him in spite of what he did. I mean, it was so recent. This great sins against his loved ones. He said, I'm going to fulfill the promise I gave your father Abraham and Isaac. I'm going to fulfill them through you. And if Jacob didn't believe, he wasn't impressed with that. Repetition of the promise The dream reminded him, Jesus is involved in his life to the very end. He's not going to leave him or forsake him. Remember that that pillow prayer, I call it pillow prayer, in God's presence was transformed into a pillar prayer. And the question I want to ask our audience here, what kind of praying do you do? Is your prayers mostly a pillow? Or is it mostly a pillar? anointed to God. And you know something? This reminds me when we anoint our pillar prayers to Jesus, He indicts our prayers with His great prayers, with His great faith. Because we're human. Our faith is fickle. Our prayers are limited. But when we join Jesus, when we line up with Jesus, His spiritual alignment, I am small, I'm just a little pillar but you line up, align yourself with the ladder, then you're in good position to be with Jesus. It's interesting when you listen to to different people pray. Uh, People pray about different things. I don't know what your prayer life looks like. Perhaps it's it's more concerned with the horizontal things of life, the, the temporal things of life, the things that are happening around you, and there's certainly nothing wrong with that. But some people, when you hear them pray, you can tell that they are less focused on the the temporal and the earthly things and more focused on the heavenly and the eternal things, the vertical things, the pillar prayers, if you will. Again, I don't don't want to diminish praying for things that are happening around us on the earth. Those are certainly important. But if we lose sight of that vertical element of prayer, sometimes our prayers can be less less deep, less meaningful than they could be. That's true. Because, you know, uh, uh, we want people to pray for us. Our pastors, our parents, our friends. Which is good, as you said. But don't forget about Jesus praying for you. No prayer is meaningful unless it's indicted by Jesus' prayers. You know, I I, I wrote a book called uh, Christ Way to Pray. How Jesus prays for us and with us. And there I emphasize the point that our faith needs help. Our prayers need help. And great help is on the way. How does my faith need help? Because at my best, 
it's weak. My prayers are weak. So what choice do I make? It's a choice. I choose to unite my fickle faith with Jesus' formidable faith. I choose to indict my, um, my measly prayers. They're only measly. With Jesus' mighty prayers. And therefore Jesus and you and me and all of us can be confident that we are doing things with Jesus. And you know something? It gives our faith buoyancy. It gives our prayer life confidence. Uh, absolutely. And if you are interested in picking up that book, we do carry that book on the It Is Written shop. It is written.shop. And what is the title of the book again, very quickly? Christ's Way to Pray. Christ's Way to How Pray. Jesus Prays for Us and With Us. Excellent, by Dr. Philip Simon. So you can pick that up on the itiswritten.shop website. We have just a couple of minutes left, Dr. Simon. Jacob united his prayers with Jesus. He still went through some rocky times in his life, and we talked about that with Laban and the deception and the wives and, and so forth. How did God ultimately bless Jacob's life? How did he bring blessing out of this dysfunctional family, the deceit, the problems, the challenges? Uh, how did God manage to yet bring good out of that? Through brokenness. Jacob had to be totally sanctified for God as he faced his brother, Esau. I mean, that was 14 years before. Can you imagine how people keep grudges? He was going to kill him. He had an army to kill Jacob. And Jacob's faith was tested. But when he wrestled with the angel, he said, bless me. We don't know what we ask for. We say, God, please, I won't let you, you bless me. And the blessing was brokenness, humility, total dependence on God. Humility. And when his brother saw him, his heart was broken. And instead of killing him, stabbing him in his neck, he, he hugged him. He wept around his neck. God can change things so dramatically if we trust him. And so our connection with God is, is paramount in importance. And that's really what this lesson is all about. Lesson number nine, Jacob the supplanter. God was yet able to work through all these challenges, all these difficulties, all these problems, and bring good out of it. And ultimately, part of that good is seen in the life of Jesus. And so that's really encouraging for us to be able to see. You think, sorry. Go right ahead. You think I say one little thing here? But it's interesting how Jesus works with everybody. He worked with Nathaniel. Philip told him, I want to see Jesus. That's the background of Jesus being the ladder in, in John 1.51. And, and uh, Nathaniel said, how could anything good come out of Nazareth? In other words, Jesus is not good. He's bad. How did Jesus respond to him? He said, but you, Nathaniel, you are a true Israelite, the greatest compliment you give a Jew. You are a true Israelite in whom there is no guile. Jesus specialized in affirmation. In spite of our problems, in spite of thinking he was bad, he brings the most out of it for Nathaniel, for Jacob, for everybody. I think for you and me today as well. For me and me today, for you and me. And we trust that that will be the case with you. We look forward to seeing you again next time as we study lesson number 10 in the book of Genesis. Dr. Saman, thank you once again for joining thank us today. Thank you, I enjoyed it. God bless you. We'll see you next time.